Good morning, and welcome to Motivate Now, where we will be talking about the top 10 things top performing businesses do differently for incentives and rewards. My name is Melissa Van Dyke, and I'm president of the Incentive Research Foundation. And for those of you who are joining us today but may not be aware, IRF is a nonprofit research foundation. And over the last 20 years, we've dedicated uh, millions of dollars to research and education on the topic of incentives and motivation in the workplace. I am joined today by two of IRF's great research advocacy partners from Creative Group. Paul Hebert, VP of Individual Performance Strategies, and Deb Parsons, EVP of Sales and Marketing at Creative Group. So welcome, friends. Happy Thank to be you. here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, looking forward to this. Looking forward to the conversation, especially as um, you guys are fantastic about providing us kind of that boots on the ground perspective about what's happening in programs today, especially uh, when it comes to looking at best practice research and, and benchmarking as well. And we do know, um, and kind of what we'll be diving into today, as of 2016, we know that the vast majority of U.S. businesses, 84% uh, of U.S. businesses, use non-cash rewards as, uh, as a method of encouraging, engaging, um, retaining their employees, sales people, and channel or dealer partners. Um, and it, based on that, we know that we have to start shifting our viewpoint from if reward and recognition is happening in U.S. businesses today to more directly how it's happening. And, you know, and most importantly, where is it happening most effectively? So what are the, the top performing businesses doing differently than everyone else? Um, and I think what's interesting about this is we're, you know, we're used to uh, looking at the average and I'm not sure we always want to be looking at the average. Um, we don't think any business in, in the U.S. wakes up and goes, we want to be average, right? So we need to be looking a little bit more at the, the outliers and uh, the top performing organizations to get an idea of what they do and what they do differently. Um, the difference is, uh, and the kind of the harder part of it is, and what is a top performing company? Uh, most of the existing top performing company uh, lists that exist right now, um, for example, the, the Fortune 500 looks at uh, you know a, one specific uh, metric, and that would be revenues. You've got best places to work, which looks at employee set, or JD Power, which looks at customer set. Uh, so you know which one of those do you use? And the strength in uh, some of the research we're going to talk about today and the series that's coming forward um, is that it actually defines what a top performing business uh, was in 2018 by more than one metric that may matter to an organization. So top performers in this study had to score high on revenues, employee engagement, and customer satisfaction. By the way, that process uh, by which we bucketed was opaque to the respondents. They did not know that that was um, how we were uh, we were going to be bifurcating the research. 
Um, so this study helps us differentiate what those top performing companies do differently regarding non-cash reward and recognition. Um, and we hypothesized when we started this series of research that um, there might be a few things that they did differently. Um, but what we found is there's actually a lot that they do differently. Uh, for the 2018 research, um, for firms over $100 million in revenue, uh, we looked at over 400 businesses. Uh, 50 of those were top performing tech firms. And uh, we are comparing those as we go through this research to uh, over 70 average performing tech firms. Um, to be a top performer in 2018, or to qualify as one of those top performers, the most important requirement was in financial growth. So the individuals and the firms for which they were responding had to have more than 5% growth in revenue or in stock price. Uh, in addition, they also had to demonstrate both of the following. They had to be strong performers with customers, uh, meaning they had to have 90% or higher in customer satisfaction and loyalty, or customer acquisition rates higher than 5%. On top of that, they also had to be strong performers with employees. So they had to have 90% or higher employee set, or a loss rate of less than 5% of year of their high-performing employees. So they had to really be top performers on all three metrics, on revenues, on customer engagement, and on employee engagement. So um, again, we kind of hypothesized that there would be um, a number of things that these organizations did differently. Um, we were rather surprised to find, again, in our second round of doing this series of studies, um, that there is a lot that top performing tech companies do differently. Um, we're going to look at uh, about 10 ways the data showed top performers in tech think about and design their non-cash reward and recognition programs differently than the average performing tech companies. Uh, but as we get ready to kind of dive in here, I think it's um, Paul, this is kind of pulling forward some of the, the great conversations you and I have had as well, is that, you know, today we're going to be looking at the differences in average performing uh, and top performing tech firms. That does not necessarily mean that all tech performing, top performing tech firms do all of these things. What we're highlighting are the important differences in beliefs and design patterns of which we should really take note. Um, we will have be pointing out some of the places where the vast majority, you know, 80% and higher of, of top performing tech firms do have a particular practice or um, a particular thought pattern. Um, the first nine differences that we're going to talk about hold true regardless of the type of program that we're talking about, whether it was sales or channel or employee. Uh, and then at the end, we'll really talk about uh, some of those deeper findings into specific program types, whether it was employee programs, sales programs, or channel partner programs. Um, that's right. Highly encourage anybody listening to make sure they go out and take a look at the research uh, that's being released and, and look at the paper um, because this is just um, a primer to many of the the deeper findings that we had, uh, even in the in the individual program structures. Uh, so, the, I think, to me, one of the strongest findings, and uh, this is where I think 
so much of what we're going to talk about today really hangs from and, and falls forward is um, how top performing tech firms think about these, these programs. Top performing tech firms were more likely to agree that their executives are strong supporters of reward and recognition as a competitive advantage. And they were just not slightly more likely. They were twice as likely <laughs> to be in agreement that their executives are strong supporters of reward and recognition as a competitive advantage. And you kind of, uh, you differentiate that from average performing firms who were more likely to say, you know, eh, our executives are willing to do some reward and recognition, but really only enough to remain competitive. And so as we kind of roll through this, you know, to start with the, the understanding that 86% of these high-performing tech firms view these tools, reward and recognition, um, as a competitive advantage to what they do, I think that is a good primer for um, or view into why some of the other findings um, came forward as they did. I mean, as top-performing tech firms um, were equally as likely as average-performing companies to agree the programs they design and run reflect who they are as a company and that the programs are, are somewhat expected in their industry, but they were statistically more likely to say their executives believe that reward and recognition is a critical tool in managing the performance of the company. You had two-thirds of these top-performing tech company respondents saying they strongly agree that um, their executives view this as a critical tool um, for managing the performance of the company. And another, you know, over a third agreed, uh, uh, somewhat agreed. So you have 98%, right, the, the vast, vast majority of these top performing companies saying uh, that rewards and recognition are a critical tool in managing the performance of the company. And that falls forward into how they think about them as a tool in engagement and uh, retention and recruiting as well. Uh, so close to 90% of both the average and top performing tech firms agreed or strongly agreed that their programs were effective engagement and retention tools. So that's kind of baseline in the tech industry, um, viewing these types of tools as um, effective engagement and uh, retention opportunities. But what's fascinating is that top performing tech companies have kind of gone that extra mile in using this um, or, or playing it forward into recruiting as well. 58% uh, of the top performing tech companies strongly agreed their programs were effective recruitment tools and another a third somewhat agreed. So you had over 90% of the respondents from those top performing tech firms saying that our programs are effective recruitment tools. And that was actually flipped for the average performing companies. So it's very clear, um, I think, in, in this data that these top performing tech firms um, think very different and very strongly and very highly of reward and recognition as a tool. Um, so I'm kind of curious, um, Paul and Deb, how does, how does that kind of fit with your experience with tech clients? Yeah, um, this is this is Deb, obviously. And first of all, I'm I'm delighted to join the conversation um, that I find both relevant and it's also happily something that I'm really passionate about. With more than ninety percent of our business um, in the Creative Group West office focused on this tech sector that you're 
that you're featuring. So this is really absolutely what we see. Um, in fact, I can't necessarily think of a single example where this is not the prevailing wisdom. So we know that the tech incentives that we plan and design are indeed considered a part of our clients' employee engagement, really, as you said, Melissa, at the core. But also, importantly, when they're done right, they become a retention play for top talent. I, I have multiple examples of executives who will share and tell us that their incentive programs are a competitive tool and that they hold on to the best and the top performers by, by taking this really exquisite care of these salespeople and their spouses on, on this annual trip that everybody sort of looks forward to. So I think the time that the executives get on site with these folks, this, this intimacy that's created is really seen as an opportunity for them to raise the bar year over year and keep the sales team hungry for these magical experiences. So whether it's stated or not, I think that we see this really as, as a recruitment tool um, whether or not they're they're calling it such, right? We're we're right. sort of living in this connection economy, and I think the experiences that we're helping create are expected to be epic, and they're meant to drive the sales team to work like mad to be a part of this wow um, that they know is going to be waiting for them year over year. I, I think we certainly see in tech that the the money behind these events is real. And they're counting us to deliver world-class impact that the sales organization won't soon forget and, and knows moves the needle, right? I think okay. sort of lastly, as, as sales folks move around, they talk about the sales incentive experiences that they've had. And there is a knowing about whether their company and brand is meeting that mark and living up to the top performing tech competitors in their lane. So there is such a thing as, as incentive program envy in tech, and that, that drives us to be nimble um, and to be clever and fresh, um, because I think, as, as you've talked about in the last couple of slides, these programs can really work in layers. Right. Yep. Yeah, I mean, even though I know we're talking um, <clears throat> a vertical here with the tech world, I've actually, I mean, in most of my experiences, anybody that's a top performer in their vertical has this point of view, uh, whether that's the insurance vertical or the automotive aftermarket, but anybody that has relies on distribution channels knows that in a lot of cases, these are the things that drive differentiation. I mean, I flat out have had um, the top people in a program or in the company say, during the interview, people ask, what is your right. top performer program? So, I mean, these, yeah. these things are ranked up there as 401k and do I get to go to Hawaii, right? So that these right. are important things on people's on, on agendas. And I think the other thing that, that I can almost always say is that if you're talking to the sales, the head of sales or the head of marketing at the organization, chances are you're talking to a top performer because though that level is involved in these discussions. It's not abdicated down or, or pushed down the channel or the ladder at all. So I, you know, I, I wouldn't have had the data, the numbers like you have here, but I could have probably have bet that this would have been the result just from experience talking to the, the top, top people. Yeah, for, for sure. They're, they're protected and, and sort of viewed as, as the golden egg, right? Right. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and we'll be talking a little bit uh, as well as that there are a lot of tiered structures coming into play as well. Um, but, you know, you can mention the top performers, uh, the top performing individuals within these companies and how this is um, a key strategy or these types of programs are a key retention strategy. And I sometimes wonder, um, you know, we have, we have data that tells us intangible value is a huge part of an organization's value right now. Um, and gap accounting principles allows you with your, with your, um, your top people to view those contracts um, and retaining those people as one of your intangible assets as an organization. Um, so is that, that the intangible value of companies increases, which we know it is, um, I wonder uh, if, if that's only going to get uh, stronger, uh, viewing, the, that meeting, viewing these programs as a competitive advantage when you can look at them as um, an intangible asset with your, with your top performers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, without these, then the only thing you really have to rely on is commission structure, right? And then you're just basically creating mercenaries and they're just gonna job hop. So these actually, they supplant that whole commission compensation world and allows me to compete without having to have to have the highest paid sales force or a ridiculously paid sales force or distribution channel. So it, it, it definitely goes hand in hand with, with the whole, you know, the whole package. Yeah. And yeah. I think, I think it's nuanced as well in, in terms of, you know, just in particular when you have legacy programs that have been in place for 10, 15, 30 years, the, the, the customization that goes in now and, and, and our clients desire to see us match the experience with their brand and their culture and to make this really big connection um, is pretty powerful. Yeah. And that alignment to brand and culture um, is something that we had had seen in in the data as well, which is actually um, a really kind of great segue into kind of looking at how um, some of this played out then in the actual design and execution of the programs. Because you know clearly what we're all talking about is for uh, for the top performing tech firms, and there's a strong belief in these types of tools. Well, how does that play out in uh, the, the design and the structure of the programs themselves. So we've got six different design patterns that we, we're going to talk about quickly here today, um, but there are a number of other ones identified in the research itself. So again, I'd encourage anybody listening to, to go and, and check it out. Um, but first, top-performing tech companies were more likely to, um, to connect and to consolidate their programs. Um, less than 5% of the respondents uh, set, designed and managed all of their programs separately. This had a bunch of smattering of programs happening out there. So we can kind of say um, that that's really, um, really not a, a practice or a common practice in tech today. And so the, the, the main thing that we saw, however, um, is half of both top performing and average performing firms, both types of firms, said they have multiple programs across the company, but they're designed and managed under a common purpose. So that is the predominant strategy used today in both types of firms. Um, now the difference is, what about the other uh, virtual half of respondents? And that's where we really saw the difference, um, statistical difference actually. A third of the top performing tech companies said they have a single program for the entire company, and only 10% of the top performing tech companies said, yep, yeah, we, we have multiple programs and some are connected, 
uh, but some are disconnected. So clearly the, the prevailing strategy is all about uh, cannot, putting consolidation um, or at least connectivity uh, between these mm -hmm. programs into a common purpose. Um, so the same um, we also saw with collaboration. It would make sense, right, that um, if these uh, programs are going to be consolidated um, and we're trying to look for those benefits that we would want to uh, or reach out to all corners of the organization um, in their design. And that's exactly what we, we saw in the research. 84% of top performing tech companies said their programs are designed, not just designed, but designed and managed with strong collaboration across multiple departments and division. So this isn't just owned in HR, this isn't just owned in marketing, um, or just owned in sales, it is pervasive across the organization um, with multiple, or, uh, multiple parts of the organization contributing to the uh, design and management of the program. Um, one of the fascinating things we found as it pertains to who the organizations are trying to reach with these programs, you know, one of the biggest discussions um, that I think has been going on in this space for, for a long time is if the program of the structure, the structure of the program should be focused on your top performers, you know, truly exceptional performance has to be in place in order for somebody to earn or, or quote unquote win. Um, or um, is it that we want as many individuals as possible to be um, touched and motivated by the program? Um, and first, one of the things we did confirm through the research is that trying to do both of those things is not, uh, is not a common practice. Um, firms really landed in one camp or the other. So equally interesting to that, that the top performing companies were statistically more likely to say their structure um, for their programs had the goal of each participant receiving a recognition or reward during the program. Uh, less than a third of the top performing companies said they focus only on, only on the top performers or exceptional performers. Um, and you'll see that play out when we talk about the sales and channel programs where mm -hmm. top performing tech companies very commonly have tiered structures for their programs. And we kind of see that here in the reward types as well. So we know that um, vast majority of U.S. businesses using um, non-cash rewards. We also know that all types of non-cash rewards are in use um, in U.S. businesses today. Award points, gift cards, merchandise, fruits and incentive trips. Um, the vast majority of businesses also use more than one reward type uh, with, their, with their organizations. Um, but what was surprising was that while both average and top performing tech companies were equally likely to use gift cards and to use merchandise, it was the top performing tech companies that were more likely um, to use other types of rewards as well. Um, the, the top performing tech companies were 25% uh, more likely to use award points and twice as likely than average performing tech companies to have a group incentive trip. So 80% of all top performing companies in the tech space have award point programs, 65%, so close to two thirds have gift card programs, over half have merchandise programs, um, and more than, uh, or roughly a third have group incentive trips. So when you kind of look across the board at all the different types of um, 
uh, investment that are going into these programs at top performing companies where you have um, the uh, design and collaboration and consolidation. It's probably not surprising uh, that uh, top performing tech companies were more likely to give their programs an excellent rating when it comes to executive support, when it comes to the alignment of their programs to corporate goals, um, or even to the budgets that support those programs. And we'll talk uh, in the individual uh, program types about what, those, um, what some of those budgets look like. Um, but this I did find uh, really interesting. Um, then the top performing companies were almost twice as likely as average performing companies to strongly agree that they look to outside partners for expertise in ways to recognize and incense their participants. Total of 53% uh, strongly agreed, 35% somewhat agreed for, for a total of 88% or almost 90% of these top performing tech companies saying they look to um, outside partners for expertise, which I think is a great, kind of a great segue here. You know, clearly, uh, Deb, uh, Paul, you're clients are looking to outside um, expertise and how do you see some of these design patterns that we're talking about here, these elements of, you know, consolidation, collaboration, reach, alignment, do you see those structures pulling forward in uh, the client work that you do? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. Um, certainly, we love that our that our clients believe that we can add extraordinary value being at the table, right, and, and helping them support their business goals and objectives in alignment, um, right, with their recognizing and rewarding their participants. I think as it relates to consolidation and collaboration, we certainly, we see lots of both. I'll talk a little bit about, you know, sort of high growth companies um, where business is scaling fast, where they, they are growing their sales force and have exceptional performance. A lot of those tech partners have really come to us to figure out with them how to manage this growing performance, right? And it might mean creating a separate recognition event in the geographies versus holding one large global event. Um, you know, it gets hard to create intimacy and a sense of things being special with a thousand people in attendance. So they've, they might look to us to help create parity around the world and, and create these separate either waves of programs or geo-based programs, as I mentioned. We also see collaboration in and across different business groups or business units where they all have a desire to participate in, in the recognition trips, but they might look to creative group to create continuity and a tie back to the brand story while they run these smaller incentives across the business, but want to pull them all back to a larger narrative or storyline. Again, in, in some mature business, right, we, there, there's a sense of, of, the, of the future. In, in some of the younger companies, they might come to us when they think they've outgrown their ability to be world class because they do it once a year and we're doing it, you know, 30 and 50 times a year. So there's a lot that they can learn from us to scale and, and move along that spectrum of, of top performance. I, I think, 
Yeah, go ahead, Paul, first. Happy for you to jump in. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think there's there's two layers here, right? There's the layer at the, like you were talking about with the events and being able to connect all that, but there's also the ability to connect that to the point type programs and things that we've talked about with the different type of award options. And I think this just gets back to the, the idea where we actually started this whole thing is that top performing clients see what we do both from a travel points, individual, that kind of thing, as a differentiator in their business, both just from a recruiting, retention, and performance layer. So they see that as a value. And anytime you value something, you start researching it, right? So I think that every re all this other data that's coming in basically shows that top-performing companies value what we do. Therefore, they, they are out there researching what works and what doesn't work. They're talking to people like us, experts yeah. in the field, making sure that they're validating what they think. They're asking for input. So I, I love the idea that, yes, because they, they differentiate themselves through these type of programs, they look for the value. They look to expand how much they know and what they know, and that's why we get involved. So I, I do think that there's this idea that as soon as somebody starts to value what we do, then the world opens up for them because they start listening to our recommendations. They start listening to the yeah. fact that, yeah, we're going to connect across different uh, programs. We're going to help you reinforce different audiences. And, and all of that then goes into the, the, the design that we put out there. So, again, top performers are always going to be those that are going to be partnering with us, we hope anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think there's just a, there's a, a sense of <clears throat> an agency sitting just outside we can often see things in their business that it's like anything, right? You, you, you can, your vision gets a little bit um, cloudy when it's all you're doing. And so sometimes just having some perspective and a little bit of outside guidance or benchmarking um, can provide, can provide a lot of, of input and, and help them reset direction. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I'm consistently fascinated by, you know, and I, I swim in this, I've been, you know, swimming around in, in this data and these types of solutions for, you know, a couple of decades now. And I'm still, you know, consistently fascinated by the individuals who, who are coming to understand what rich data there is and what depth of knowledge there are in design patterns and what works and what doesn't and what might just seem for organizations who are, um, beginning or, or kind of coming up in, in these types of tools and learning about these types of tools, what just seem like a great idea. Like, hey, I've literally had somebody last year to say, you know, I thought it was a great idea to use travel to 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 say thank you to our top performing uh, <laughs> salespeople, and I had no idea that there was this entire industry behind it. Um, but that, that there are these centers, these really deep knowledge centers around structures that work and how those things fit together and how you get bang for your buck and how you um, manage risk and all of the things that wrap into it. Um, and I think that's kind of an, an interesting segue into looking at what happens even within the individual program types, right? Because I'm sure as you guys know, um, you know, a sales program doesn't look like a channel program, doesn't look like an employee program. And that's one of the things that we wanted to understand in the research is, you know, are there different design patterns by program type as well. And so again, some really rich stuff um, in the paper itself. But and we'll hit on a, just a, a few of the really interesting things here. I mean, we did see that these top performing top companies had some different design patterns by, by program type as well. Uh, when we looked at the, the sales and the channel programs, 
um, from a structure, from a spend, from a cap, and from a tier standpoint, uh, there were some differences. Um, the, the sales incentive programs at these top performing tech firms were more likely to offer uh, that, that top performer sales award and have that, that incentive trip, um, which, which you, know, you, were, you were talking about, Deb. From a spend standpoint, um, the top performers spent uh, $6,833 per person on their incentive travel program, um, and then $6,722 per person on their, on their channel program. And what, we, what we're finding fascinating in the data is that the median and, and the average is getting farther apart, which means we're having more and more outliers that are coming through in the data, um, meaning you know, in, we're seeing data come through where you know, some organizations are spending $10,000, $30,000 per person on, on some of these uh, top performing or top performer sales and, and channel programs. Um, and of course, that goes into budgeting and caps. Um, We've seen that the top 70%, so very common in the top performing tech companies, were to have a variable number of winners for their sales incentive programs, um, but having a fixed number of winners for their channel programs. So there's actually a difference in uh, the structures there, whether it was sales or channel. Um, and then we've hit on this a couple of times, but I, you know, going back to that reach standpoint, going back to um, these being critical tools, uh, both for the top performing tech companies, both channel and sales partner incentive programs at these top performing tech firms were more likely to have a tiered structure that uses all of the different tools, reward points, merchandise, gift cards. Um, again, looking at that maximizing reach of uh, to their participants. Um, in fact, I think it was the 90% of uh, the top performing tech partners in the channel space used that strategy uh, and over um, almost 90%, 88% in sales programs. Um, and we saw the same thing in employee programs too, that there were definitely different design patterns um, for, uh, for employee programs. Um, employee programs at top performing tech firms per the data are 16, 16% more likely than the average firms to use um, goal-based earnings with ind individualized targets. 10% more likely to um, create their budgets from the bottom up. Um, so calculating the amount of investment as a percentage of the um, employee's income. And that was one of the predominant strategies. Um, and then, you know, of course, we see the, the spend for employee programs at a different rate than we do um, we're talking about top performer travel, but more at $451 per person for, for the top. So again, I think it's, you know, and when you kind of put all of that together and say, you know, there is some, um, there's some deep, deep expertise and knowledge that goes around to how these are executed, does that kind of fit boots on the ground with, you know, I think you've alluded to it a little bit, some of the, the individual program type structures that, that you're seeing and experiencing with clients? Definitely. I, you know, I think the data is, is super powerful and it, it, at the same time, it doesn't surprise me because we see this um, in our space. So I, I, think, I think part of the driver is this, com this competitive advantage really is the game changer, right? And spend necessarily lines up behind that. But a, a Platinum Club program that is designed to sort of reward the tippy top is, is really industry standard, right? We have many accounts who operate two programs for the very reason that they know that the recognition moves people and it shows up in their performance. So I think there are other 
factors as well, right? There are many more kind of bespoke and, and custom things that you can do for smaller, more intimate top achievers programs that are harder to execute with, with 200 couples. Um, right. A safari experience in a, in a game lodge, for example, or you know, a, a, an exotic beach location with over the water bungalow accommodations, those places don't cater to 500 people. So I would say that you know, how the gates are set in careers and, and program design vary um, naturally. And we have just like these, these platinum club programs or separate top achievers kinds of trips. We also, we have other customers who create a mini program within a larger one and the, and the top winners may have some more discreet or subtle enhancements like room category or business class airfare or a couple of extra days stay. Um, and, and they're simply sort of taken care of in, in, in a less obvious way throughout the event. So there's a lot of variety, but I think it's, it's typical to see various designs for sure. And, and we see spend at, at, as you mentioned, Melissa, you know, we're looking at averages, but you've got outliers at the top end with incrementally significantly higher dollar amounts as you move up the ladder of, of sales performance at times. Um, yes. And I think in terms of the goals and how the dials are set, um, many times we're not even brought in in these mature legacy programs to, to really set the criteria, right? It exists and, and they believe that it's working for them. We might see things or know things that we can bring to the table. And I think it's more our newer, younger clients that lean on us to really help calibrate the rules of engagement yeah. and, and sit at the table with them to design the, the tiers and the qualification. Um, yeah. If there's a doubt about the why and the, and the how for an incentive, we can step back and really provide you know, a, an audit kind of conversation so that everybody comes to the table with Paul, of course, <laughs> with the yeah. data about what's working and why or why not, um, and, and then bring in subject matters to help them set and, and build something that's going to work for their business. Right. And, and what I think is kind of fascinating is for some of these legacy programs, I'm sure that when those, is, you know, in your term, when the gates were set, when the dials were turned initially, there was not a lot of data out there about what they should be set at or what those gates should be or where to set those dials. So from a legacy standpoint, you can see, you know, how over time the, the programs became very embedded even without um, the benchmarks and the types of information we have today around yeah. you know, how to go about setting those goals, how about how to go about turning those dials and where, you know, what what's the tipping point of investment um, along that um, spectrum as well. Along um, that, and I'm, I'm getting, yeah, I, one of the things I was going to mention that I think is also interesting and it sort of ties to, to what you just said and what we were talking about a couple of slides back on this consolidation, collaboration, reach and alignment I think some other things have shifted and these programs now have influence coming from different pockets within the organization as well, right? Procurement has been at the table for a good decade. You have finance involved in these conversations and both sales and marketing at the table. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, it might've just been the sales executive and, and right. you didn't necessarily get influence from these other places. So, it, 
it begs us and requires us to be aware of, of the other factors and to have a more holistic conversation about their business and what they're after with the various stakeholders. So I completely agree. It's kind of a force amplifier to have all of those yeah. individuals at the table looking at how these types of tools can be used to support not just, you know, a, a, a sales strategy, but an HR strategy and a marketing strategy and fit procurement's needs from a value perspective, right? And, well, by the way, let's talk about risk <laughs> and yep. how we're going to make it yeah. risk, right? So, and that kind of fit with, uh, with kind of when you're looking at some of those um, the individual performance strategy side, um, kind of how, what you're experiencing with clients as well, Paul? Absolutely. I mean, again, I, I have to keep coming back to the fact that the people that find value in what we do listen to what we say. So when we look at some of these statistics at the end here on the last slide that you're talking about, those are all things we recommend, right? You should do a bottom up. We should look at awards based on income. Uh, we should do tiered programs so that we can move the middle. These are all things we would recommend. So it doesn't surprise me that top performing companies do them because they're relying on us. And so this, this idea of, you know, a top performing company will almost, when we work with them, it's a, it's a pleasurable experience, right? Because you guys are all, everybody's aligned. I, I always go back to, if I'm doing a lot of missionary work on why you should do incentives, that's going to be a long road before we get to where it's really, really successful. We have yeah. to do it in a lot of cases uh, because we want some of these companies that aren't top performers to become top performers. And the way you do that is right. to what we say, um, invite us in, bring some people, you know, we do sprints on a regular basis with our clients to help design their programs. And we insist that they bring in somebody from marketing, somebody from sales, somebody from finance, and somebody from outside the, 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 the whole organization, maybe even, uh, you know, a consultant, so that we, we can vector in from a lot of different points of view, because that's how we're really going to come up with something a little bit interesting, a little bit more disruptive. So we definitely lean, lean into this idea of bringing in more people to have that conversation that Deb was mentioning, because when you have 10 people all wanting something, purchasing is going to have a really hard time saying no to it, <laughs> I hope anyway. Mm -hmm. right? right. So, yeah. Uh, well, and, and when you can see the alignment and how, how the different organizations or different divisions within the organization can all find benefit from a single tool or set of tools, right? Um, which well, isn't true of, of necessarily every, um, you know, right. every, everybody that comes in. Exactly. And, and we forget sometimes that we aren't selling a tool. We're selling a toolbox. We're selling a workbench. We're selling an entire garage, if you want to say, of a variety of tools, but they do work in, they, they connect. And yeah. so when we talk about, you know, bringing people in, they see different things. The training department says, oh, you've got a way to do just-in-time learning because you've got a platform that, that communicates with the audience. Uh, somebody in, uh, you know, HR says, oh, you've got a way to um, identify, you know, people who are winning or earning things so that we can highlight them in our company newsletter. So we have all these different ways to actually impact other people's business. So it's not always like we were saying here, sales, marketing, channel. Uh, and we don't have a tool, we have a whole garage. Yep. And I, I, now, I now have this great visual of you and Deb, Paul, in a garage, like going to work, <laughs> right? In your, in, in your garage, like making it happen, right? Um, and I think that's what's really exciting about where, where I think um, a lot of this is heading. Again, I've been sitting and kind of swimming around in this data, and we, you know, and I've, I've been, I've sat with um, like quite, quite literally um, big five consulting firms, and I've sat with, um, 
some of the, the larger research firms who didn't, this is just a blind spot for them, right? This yeah. is just not yeah. their core expertise. So for them to even be in and recommending these types of things isn't, is not common. In fact, it doesn't happen at all because they don't, they don't have the depth of resources or understanding of how uh, this set of tools works. Um, that, that we do, um, and these types of benchmarks and tiers, and where to set those dials to your to your terms, Deb, and, and where to set those gates, et cetera. So exactly. a lot a lot of great opportunity, I, I think, coming down the pike. And I can't thank you guys enough for for being here and getting in that garage with me today um, <laughs> on <laughs> on no the call. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks everybody as well who joined us as listeners. We're looking forward to having you back next month on our next episode of Motivate Now a production of the Incentive Research Foundation. So thanks, Deb. Uh, thanks, Holly. Have a great day. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye.